Every contractor knows the secret to surviving is knowing what to throw away, knowing what to keep. Because every job's a winner and every job's a loser. And the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, I love it. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold love them, it. know when to walk away, know when to run. I love it. I love Kenny, by the way. That was our first Kenny, man. <laughs> Kenny's awesome. You and thank you very much for that intro. That was amazing. We really appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Carlito. Manny. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a very interesting show. We are, you um, uh, and what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about older buildings. We're going to talk about older building. And sure, I love talking about old so, buildings. So, I mean, that's how you, you love, I love old buildings. You love old buildings. He's an old building, so he loves them as well. Wait, I'm an old building? <laughs> we're all <laughs> old buildings now, I think. <laughs> so, we're going to talk a lot about that. So, we've got you and from Renaissance underscore Inc. on uh, Instagram. That's right. And then it's uh, www.renaissanceinc.com and it's info at renaissanceinc.com. The phone number's on there as well. Every, every, phone number's on the Instagram and the website. Everybody. And, so, everyone can get a hold of you. No problem. What do you want? Oh. What do we have first? We have history with Manny. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We can hear this, eh? This is all the documents for my team. The budget's gone right through the roof. Uh, I want to say one thing, first of all. Hang on a sec. House clean. Oh, dude, you're so right. We want to say a big thank you to Mark at Skylux. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, so much for letting us record the podcast at uh, Stuck Skylux uh, Studios is where we're recording. This is it our home time. now. This is our home, right? So we've been here quite a bit, and uh, we want to thank you very much. Give him a shout-out. Uh, reach yeah. out to him. Call him for a next quote for Roof. He does all kinds of siding stuff and everything like that. And I also want to point out that you and brought us some oh my olives, God. and I've already had one. I don't think this is going to make the weekend, man. I hope not. Ah, these are tasty, man. Absolutely tasty. So thank you for that. But let's get back to our segment. History with Manny. <laughs> I want to ask you, gentlemen, what is the oldest building in Canada? I can give you guys a hint. It goes as far back. So as... wait a second. This is Canada. So it's not in Ontario. This is Canada. Has to be Quebec somewhere. He's, he's in the ballpark. Oh. He's in the ballpark. Are we going further east? No, no, no. It's Quebec. Oh, okay. It is Quebec. It's then then it's, I'm lost already. It's old. So uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Makes wow. sense. Notre Dame. So 1633. 1633. That was the first building in Canada. 1647, was, it became an official church. There was a fire, 1759, and it was rebuilt. Um, and then there was another fire. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. There was another fire. It got restored in 1922. That's the last restoration that they had there. And then in 2014, they did the 350th anniversary. Now, I really was hoping it was Fort York. Oh. I can't believe that. Wow. Notre Dame. So hmm. I guess when the settlers come over here, they build the church first, then build the, the fort. That was, that was the center of most communities yeah, in the old the days. Church. It was the church. Yeah. Church first, right? And then, then you didn't get along and you started wars. Well, you, you had to forgive your sins. <laughs> <laughs> but all over the Prince, Calendar, Prince Edward County area, you've seen all the churches. I mean, it doesn't matter how small the town is. There's, there's a steeple that spires up you yeah. know, hundreds of feet. And people are now turning them into lofts. Imagine roofing one of those steeples. That yeah. I mean, is a little... Uh, yeah, you don't, I'm upset about that. You know, aren't you? Like, I'm upset by that. Why? What, turning what? a church into a loft. 
It's it's a holy place to start your family. <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay, so that was just that was history with Manny. Manny. All right. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to Renaissance. Okay. Um, mm. So you and how did you get started in this business, man? You're so, young. You're younger than us, right? I'm older than you guys. No, you're not. I am. No, you're. Are you really? Yeah. He just told us that. I didn't know that. How old are you? I'm 52. What the. Someone beat us. <laughs> we <laughs> generally senior every, statesman. Everybody, that's most ninety percent of our guests are younger than us, man. Well, I think the average age of Instagram is like thirty-four. I don't know about that. Like all my friends are like in between forty and sixty-five. They're all on Instagram. <laughs> See. <laughs> uh, so how did you get started? Well, it depends, I guess. What you're talking about, my own business is about 20 years, but you know, I started in construction as a punk. I uh, moved to Toronto in like 84, maybe late 84. From where? Or 85, Vancouver Island. Oh, yeah. All right, BC yeah. guy. BC guy. Vancouver Island, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it out there. UBC, uh, North Shore, everything. Oh. <laughs> the seawall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I moved to Toronto and I got an apartment and I. Coincidentally, six degrees of separation, bumped into a bunch of guys that uh, I knew from BC, and we all started living together, and they were all tradesmen. So there was plumbers, there was carpenters, there was a sheet metal mechanic, and uh, I just wound up being, you know, they were all a few years older than me, and I wound up kind of bumping around between all the different companies they worked for as a laborer. I got exposed to a ton of stuff, and I started apprenticing as a plumber. I worked for a mechanical company, and we did a lot of black pipe installation, a lot of spring, you know, sprinkler installation. And that's hard work, man. That's, it was really hard work. But that's I why. That's I why mean, you're I a big guy. It. I loved it. I mean, the hard, more metal hard work slivers, the man. All the oil and metal slivers in your fingertips. Running those threading pipes all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's cool to look at. It's, it's that's why he brought the olives oil. <laughs> <laughs> that's why my hands are so. Was soft. that the trick? When you're when you're threading the, the pipes, olive oil? <laughs> no, that's only the Italian. My boss was Italian. <laughs> His name was Gino. Of course, of course he was. it was. <laughs> so this would have been your twenties, early twenties? Uh yeah, late teens, early twenties. Okay. Yeah. And then that all came to an abrupt halt. I had a motorcycle accident and uh, I think everybody at this table has had one. No? Have you? Oh, I've had like a thousand. <laughs> this was a pretty bad one. That's why I behaved the way I do. Yeah? Yeah, I had to go home and live with mom. I had amnesia for a year. Oh, wow. that bad. I didn't, I didn't know what my name was or what year it was. Oh, wow. I had like zero short-term memory. And I smashed my leg up pretty good. So, you know, I slowly got better. It took a while. But then I moved back to Toronto. I got back into the trades, kept working. And all the talk at the time was, you know, you're so lucky we didn't have to amputate your leg. And I'm like, that's kind of gory. But he said, wow, that's super common motorcycle accidents. People lose a lot of limbs. And it was kind of the topic of the day for me for a while. I also had the head injury because of the memory loss and everything. And I thought, well, I better find out how the old, you know, how the old brains work. And so I went back to school. And because the topic of the day was this <laughs> potential amputation, I went into George Brown College and studied orthotics and prosthetics. So I became a certified orthotic prosthetic technician. That's wicked. And really? I worked for a while up at Sunnybrook Hospital, uh, Hugh McMillan Rehab Center. It was in the pediatric ward, and we were making uh, devices for kids. Most of them were born with congenital deformity, like missing limbs or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I worked there for a while. But I don't do well working in a 
I don't want to drive to the same place every single day and do the same thing every day yeah. with the same people and the, the same office shop. job. I, it's even though I was working in a shop, like I was a technician. So the clinician was the guy that was in the office meeting the patients and you know, he would cast a stump or whatever he was doing for a prosthetic. And then he would bring it back and say, okay, you, and you know, make me this. And that's what I like. I like making stuff. So I was in the shop. You that ever make really anything with like, Weapons in them? Oh my god! <laughs> no, but one kid did ask once. He wanted his leg to look like a Ferrari, so we made it red and we put kind of louver, no louvers on the oh, side. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty happy. That with was it. pretty cool. Yeah. Wicked. So you had some creativity going on there. Yeah, it's very creative. It was it was a good job. How long did you do that for? Almost four years, probably. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. And then then so to my mid twenties, and then got back into. Oh, this well, is really early on. Oh yeah, I was just a kid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I got, I don't know, I got bored with it. I just thought, I don't want to be doing it. Like, I, got, I was doing that for, you know, almost four years, and I felt like it was getting repetitive. I thought, geez, I come in, I do the same thing every day. I thought, I can't do this for the next 30 years. I thought, there's no way. I question that about track builders, man, like subdivision work. I and couldn't they do come that. in and frame model number one, frame model number two. It's like the same thing, basically. I think that's part of the reason why a lot of those houses get a lot of errors and, you know... In, in the way they're built and people get they, they tell you to actually keep your mind active by not taking the same driving core or direction to the your work because you'll just be so caught up in it you'll actually not pay attention to everything yeah it's true. you won't see what's called uh, the monkey oh my god you ever, you ever heard of that? everything no. no you ever heard about that monkey analysis thing no where you get a room full of people and they're told one thing to focus on one thing only Right. And so they do that. But during the course of this action of a group of people doing something, they're looking for this one thing. Meanwhile, the, the physicians there actually let a guy in a monkey suit walk right through the crowd of people. Oh, and they don't even see him. And they ask the people, how many people saw the monkey? And maybe about 10, 15, maybe 20 percent people say, I saw something, but I wasn't sure was it because they were so focused on that one action that they were told to look wow. for. It's true. It actually does work that way, right? So I, I could totally understand you going to the same place over and over. They say it's the same thing too, you know, like the human brain and the eyes, if you're searching for something, like if you're sifting through a drawer looking for something, you know, there could be something that you've lost for 20 years right there. And because you're so focused on trying to find the one thing you're looking for, yeah. you wouldn't even notice it. That's interesting you bring that up. It's, it's true. It's fascinating. So I would have saw the monkey. <laughs> I, I saw, I if I saw a monkey, I'd be like, holy shit, a monkey. Yeah. And then I, you would I, be kicked out. I love monkeys to begin with. So. I hate monkeys. You hate monkeys? Oh, I hate monkeys. I love, I love a gorilla. I love a, a no, no, back, man. Monkeys are bullies, man. Have you ever hung out with a gorilla? No. Okay, no, so no. I keep them apart, man. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Can we change the topic? What made you hate monkeys? <laughs> well, a couple of things. <laughs> We want to hear this one. <laughs> I, I did a little bit of traveling, and uh, I Costa Rica. Was I was hitching, no, I was actually in in Egypt in the Sinai, which is kind of Israel Egypt. But uh, I was sitting in a little cafe, and I had a bottle of Coca Cola, and it was one of those little stubby bottles. And I didn't even know this friggin' monkey was there. But I'm sitting in the chair <laughs> with my bottle of Coke, going. <laughs> and the monkey came swinging out of the tree, and he had like a garden hose wrapped around his waist with a with a cord going through it and he was tied off to whatever so like he wouldn't run away and he came swinging out on this thing around his waist 
like it was amazing and he just swooped right by <laughs> grabbed the bottle of coke <laughs> kept swooping right up into the branch of a tree and sat there drinking it looking at me <laughs> wow i couldn't believe taunting it taunting you man seriously taunting oh, me that is good uh, <laughs> and then ever since that that monkey had a thing for me he just friggin hated me uh, I, I still funny. like monkeys though i think monkeys are funny <laughs> i went to another monkey forest and i they sell this is stupid okay this is embarrassing they sell you a bunch of bananas on the way in and they say, oh, you can give bananas to the monkeys. Well, you know, monkeys, and they see you with bananas, then 50 billion monkeys appear out of yeah. nowhere with their teeth showing, and yeah. it's like freaking terrifying. <laughs> I was chucking bananas around just trying to keep them away from me. So I was kind of traumatized. <laughs> now, right. I okay. now, okay. now I understand. Now we get it. All right. No monkeys on the job site. Uh, that's what no. we're basically saying. Wait here. a second. Hey, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to get into that. <laughs> How did we get onto monkeys? Uh, your theory oh no oh. no about being so focused on one yes, thing yes taking a different route that's to work right. every day that's how we got and yeah. I, I, I'm the exact same way which is what I love about my current job is that it's never the same yeah like you know I, I, I love that it's the creative part of it it's you know hashtag problem solver I just I love getting into things it's that are, more challenging though the older homes right you always find stuff that so many other people did over the decades well guys that do new construction hate old houses because everything's crooked the walls aren't plumb they're bulgy and weird and you got to deal with it yeah you have to be open-minded and for them you know they're production guys so they, they want to go fast they maybe they're getting piecework or you know whatever they're doing and they just want to pump the work out they don't want to stop and you know, goof around figure, figuring something out. So, but these old houses are still up. They're still compared up. to subdivision houses, track houses. Are they going to still be up a hundred years from now? No, because they weren't over engineered. <laughs> <laughs> and is that That's what you're a saying? Term. The, the older homes were over engineered. Well, I don't think they really necessarily even engineered them. I think that they just cut stuff big and they put stuff in and they kind of did conservative construction, right? You had true dimensional lumber. Yeah. You had double brick walls. No building code. No building code back then. So I don't even know how they did that. I mean, I know there was architects. So what came first? Like I'm, I, the chicken you, not the, the monkey. Well, yeah, well, no, see, that's <laughs> what I mean. You, I'm bringing up another uh, like chicken and egg thing here. Like, Did you go to a farm today? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> they start building houses badly, and that's what brought in the building code? Or did the building code come in first? No, you know what happened is it was during the 1970s in the U.S. when the energy crisis happened. And that's when the speed limits in the U.S. get dropped to 55 miles an hour because it was an effort to try and get people to burn less gas because they thought we'd hit peak oil and there was going to be this energy crisis. And that also launched the whole energy efficiency effort with homes. Hmm. And that just escalated and escalated to the point where we are today. So that's totally I true. think all the building code and stuff started coming in as a result of you know, efforts toward... To that what, what was the energy crisis, right? Yeah, and now it's being abused. Yeah, and there's no uh, peak oil. No, there's nothing at all going on. There. But even been. the older homes, they weren't all that efficient. The idea was that they weren't airtight. They were... Intentionally ventilated. Their yeah, cars. that's yeah. the reason why. Yeah. They, they were allowed to breathe that way. And that kept them dry. You know, they had no central heating of any kind, really. They just had a stove, wood stove in each room. Fireplaces and, and wood stoves. Fireplaces, yeah. yeah. And they wouldn't heat the rooms that they weren't using. They would close them off. Off in the bedroom. They had doors everywhere. If you go into old houses, they're like yep. little, little rabbit warrens, right? There's little hallways everywhere, and there's doors everywhere. And that was all because they tried to keep heat in one room. And even before that, they used to hang tapestries on the walls and stuff. It wasn't for decoration. It was, it was a kind of a primitive form of insulation. 
Wow. Interesting. Where are we at right now in your timeline? My timeline? You just what? left the hospital, oh. so now you're working. You know, I, I finished, I, I stopped doing this orthotic prosthetic stuff, and I enjoyed learning, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should go to school and see how much I really like it. And I was still a little bit worried about how well the brain worked after hitting a telephone pole with my head, so. Ouch. I went to university and I studied geology and I wound up in environmental science and I wound up doing a master's in biogeochemistry and so I guess the brain worked okay. Wow. <laughs> I, I think your brain works better than everybody else's. <laughs> wow. So, th so then I worked as an environmental consultant for about uh, almost four years. That was a terrible, that was the worst job I've ever had. Uh, is, it, is it what I think it is? What do you think it is? It's, it's very slow, very slow paced. You know, again, I was a kind of a field tech, so I would jump in a van and drive around and we were drilling... Core samples or... Yeah, we were, well, we were drilling monitoring wells into the ground. Okay. Mostly what we did was try to remediate contamination around old gas stations and stuff. And Okay. A lot of people don't know, but the buried tanks that you go to gas station when you fill, they got all these big buried tanks. And in the 1940s and stuff, they would have buried tanks as well, but they were just these big steel things that were riveted. And they accepted a 10 to 15% loss of leakage just through the buried, riveted tank. So I would go up to old gas stations and drill monitoring wells in. And then you go in and you sample the water and you take samples and stuff. And tons of places have like a meter of gasoline or diesel floating on top of the water table underground. Wow. That's and, scary. And I, you, if I told you how many of those are in southern Ontario, you'd freak. But does that include natural gas that's already in the ground? Would that be another form of it? No. So, I mean, if you go into a pristine environment and drill a hole in the ground, you'll find the water table. And, I mean, that's all you get. Soil, water, and, you know, the stuff that's naturally there. The stuff that's sitting on top of the water table in these situations is all leakage from, you know, and they used to change oil in the 40s. For cars and they used to use it on the gravel just to keep the dust down they used to just take the used oil and spread it all over them i mean well, they, they, didn't they do that on side roads at farms they yeah. spray oil with still they do, drive don't around they? With the truck yeah yeah i don't know if they still do i mean no way they people do would go mental well, they would go crazy well i see there's something like we have a farm so whenever i drive up i always see that the, it's wet for weeks because it keeps down the dust and i don't know what they're putting on the ground I don't know either. Yeah, it's probably it's probably some kind of oil. So if you found all that gasoline sitting down there, would you recommend that they remove it or are they just So what happened was it became law that people that owned a property that had environmental contamination, you know, below grade typically, uh, you weren't allowed to sell the property unless you cleaned up the mess. So I did a job. The, one of the jobs that really broke me in the industry was up in Oak Ridge's Moraine, which is a little town. It's a geologic feature from the glaciers, and it's what feeds all of the rivers, the Credit River, the Don River, all the rivers that dump into Lake Ontario are fed from the Oak Ridge's Moraine. And all the rain that falls up there in the snow, it soaks in and it comes down in the rivers. And this guy had a gas station. I don't know, like his great-grandfather had. It was like in the family for generations. And this guy that we went to do a cleanup for was like 80. And he wanted to sell the property and retire. And in my opinion, he should have been able to. He should have been to sell the property that was in his family for generations, take the money and retire. And who doesn't deserve that, right? You're right, especially at 80. So he wanted to sell. He got forced to do testing to see what was in the ground. And of course, all the bad practices from generations before were being done there. 
we drilled a bunch of holes and like it was a mess. He, he for sure he had a meter of like diesel and gasoline floating around there. Wow. So we had to dig it all up and and he hated my guts. He was there every day and I was there and <laughs> I was just spending his money like crazy. I mean, we had triaxle trucks with the pup trailer on the back, wow. filling them up by the dozen every day, driving them out of there dozens. We dug this huge hole and we had these little sensors that would sense uh, how much gasoline was in the soil. And if it goes, it measures it in what they call uh, LEL, lower explosive limit. So it's this little sniffer. And if you hit the lower explosive limit, it means that there's enough gas vapor there that a spark could ignite it and you get an explosion. I had a big trench dug there. Wow. The, the backhoe bucket hit a rock and made a little spark. And it was just this blue flame that you couldn't see. And I was just about to jump down in there to get a soil sample. And I saw the heat shimmer. I just saw this weird heat, like, you know, a heat shimmer. And I thought, what's that? And, I, and then I realized that the whole damn trench had caught on fire. Holy what? Yeah, it, it was nuts. It was a nuts job. And then where the contamination all went at a property line. So beyond the property line, he's not responsible. You get the city now. We dug it all up. You put a big sheet of plastic down. The pit was like 15 feet deep. It was huge. And we just put a big sheet of plastic, put in clean fill. And that was it. Did the city ever take care of their side? Never heard about it. Yeah. It's probably still <laughs> of there. Of course you didn't. Um, can I ask you, what do they do with that contaminated soil? Uh, well, you either truck it to an engineered landfill site, which is a, you know, a, it's got a clay layer and a geotextile and it's all this stuff that's supposed to contain whatever you put in there and you dump it in there. Or some places you spread it out all over the ground and let it evaporate. And you keep going in and turning it over all the time till it evaporates. And it eventually evaporates. But really all you're doing is you're taking a, a problem from one, one, one place, putting it, you know. That's what you're doing. <laughs> it's true, you are. But we're all on the same planet. Like, I mean, it's, it, it's not, you can't, can't go to outer space or something. Did he eventually retire? It, it broke him. He, he was bankrupt. Wait a second. That place isn't called the oil sands, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a little further west. His name was Athabasca. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. So you did that for a few years. I did that for a few years. It, it was a horrible job after tons of education and almost four years experience in the field. You know, I was on a salary and they paid me per diem. And I was doing like 80, 100 hour weeks because I was driving all over Ontario. 80, 100. <laughs> 80, 80 to 100 oh, hours. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I would stay in motels. I was never home. And I was, I was handling all these nasty materials like diesel and gasoline every day. And, you know, I, I couldn't put my actual hours on the timesheet. And I was told to only put seven and a half when some days I worked 16. I figured out at one point... After all the education and four years of experience, I was making five twenty-five an hour. Well, wow. it's good that you actually calculated it, though. So I quit because I got pissed off. I thought, I'm not martyring myself to this. I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to die from this. Nobody's going to give a shit, right? So I thought, well, why would I do it? Like, at first, when I was kind of young, naive, I thought, ah, oh, it's great. Help the I'll do it. It's but fine. Great. The number of things I learned about, you know, what's in Ontario under the ground is frightening. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, how long's the show? <laughs> we can have you back so many times. <laughs> yeah. This is really interesting for me. I don't even care about the viewers or the followers. <laughs> <laughs> so I quit that too because I couldn't do that, right? So then I really didn't have a job. I just bought a home. We were going to fill it with kids and we had a mortgage and I had no job. And I'm like, wow, this is like risky. 
I'd always worked in construction through all of my schooling and that's how I paid to get myself through it. And I always liked construction. So I kind of got, when I was a young guy, I kind of thought, well, I don't think I want to be doing this hard work when I'm 50 because hmm. it's going to be too hard. And I look back now, I'm full circle here. I am <laughs> <laughs> doing the hard work. I, yeah. And I love it. It's great. I mean, I, I, if I almost think like, had I not have got out of it, I'd probably be doing better than what I am now. Mm-hmm. But I, it's not a regret. It's just a, a thought, right? Somebody said that was a friend. Oh, you know, because my wife and I had fixed houses and sold them uh, two or three times. We did that. You know, I'd work through Christmas, holidays, New Year's. Like, I just worked. I'm a worker. You're a contractor. I just work all the <laughs> time, right? And uh, somebody said, well, you know, we need our bathroom done and we need some kitchen upgrades and we want to join the dining room and the kitchen. And I said, yep, I'll do that. So they gave me my first job and I probably didn't do that good a job for them. I didn't, you know, there was a lot of things I didn't know. So where did you pick it up? Pick what up? How did you learn? How did you learn to do things or what to do? Uh, Hands on. I mean, you know, I got exposed to a ton of stuff. The sheet, my roommate that was a sheet metal mechanic was a very, very good tradesman. He was, he was very precise. Everything was perfect. And, you know, sheet metal is a very interesting trade, right? Like the, the most interesting thing is to make a duct go from a square to a round. And the math and the drawing that you have to do to figure out how many bends to put in it to get that square to go to a round, it's, it's amazing. And he was a, he was a genius at it. Uh, we, we installed ductwork in the De Havilland Aircraft facility and oh, really? Ontario Place down on, on the water there. We did a bunch of the ductwork there nice. at, at that uh, theater. I, the I, miss, I really miss that theater. The Cinesphere. It was a great theater. I used theater. to go there what do you mean when I was a it? kid. It's, my mom took me once a week. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's, it's actually, there, but they're not working. So well, No, no, no. It's still operational outside of the COVID. It's still operational. It oh, is? is? Have you guys not driven down Lakeshore and seen the banners of what movie was playing at this certain time? This is all before COVID. Are you kidding? I drive Lakeshore like when I'm changing my There's a movie. <laughs> they were doing a whole Nolan, Christopher Nolan. The Inception was there. Dark Knight was there. They, they, they all Manny, the, you just made me happy. What? But you got to wait till COVID now. End. But no, that's great to hear. It's I still thought, operational. I thought all of it was no, shut down. It's still oper- and same with the Omnimax. Like I thought, I thought John, John Tory was trying to do a big revamp of the whole Ontario that, that place. That was a whole casino yeah, thing, co- wasn't no, it? No, it was co-op buildings. Was it co-op yeah, buildings? Yeah, they want to do co-op buildings or casinos. You're right. They were, I, I, I thought, thought it was I casinos. I thought some massive repurpose of that thing. But Until that happens, it, it's still the Cinesphere is still there. Yeah, yes. Cool. Right next news. to, uh, <laughs> what's the amphitheater called there now? Molson Theater. No. It's changed. It's changed, isn't it? Budweiser stage? I don't know, but I watched a patch called the Hardcore Theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no marketing dollars for that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, we'll plug it anyway. <laughs> hardcore Hotel. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> What's your favorite room number? <laughs> 69. Hey, I, that's no, a shocker. 72, and that's you owe sh- me. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting off topic so quite a ha- bit. We have been since the monkey story. Sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the monkey story. Um, so now you're uh, new house, renovating. You know, I, I did that job for these good folks that decided to help me out when I didn't have a job. And I never stopped doing it. You know, word of mouth. That's almost 90% of my work is word of mouth. And uh, I take pretty seriously my responsibility to go into people's places. And, you know, it's their home. Yeah. It's a huge thing. And they're going to spend tons of money. You know, they need to be able to trust somebody. They need somebody that can come in and give them good advice, you know, tell them things that what their budget is. You know, if you could defer something, 
that doesn't kind of screw the construction up that we're doing where you have to undo a bunch of stuff, throw a bunch of good money out and then rebuild it. There's a lot of ways you can do stuff like that for yeah. people, right? Yeah, yeah spend their sure. money wisely, right? Spend their money wisely. Help them to spread it out over years so that they can get what they want without blowing their brains out in one big shot. And not call you names along the way. That guy cost me a fortune. <laughs> well, that happens anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's just going to happen. That's just part of the business. So it's it true. just evolved slowly. I mean, you know, I, I didn't really operate properly at first. I was kind of a one-man show. And, uh, you know, slowly over the years, you learn more, you do more, you get better jobs, you know, you buy insurance, you get all the things, you hire people. Become um, legit. You become legit. That's all it is, right? And you in, have employees? In, or you have, have subs. I have employees. You have employees, right? So yeah. you're running a business now. Oh, yeah. So Young guys, old guys? A mix of both. Yeah. Most of the guys in their 30s. Good. You know, they're, they're good. And what do you look for in guys in your industry? A horse? <laughs> a horse and a round shovel, and I'll pay him 25 bucks a day. I'm in. <laughs> uh, mostly, I just want a guy that wants to learn and will pitch in and do whatever. I mean, you know, we're in, we're in renovation, so it's not like... I used to run ads before you could do it on, you know, on the internet. It was, I used to run ads in yellow in, pages in newspapers, yeah. community newspapers, put, just put little ads in newspapers looking yeah. for, and I ran them all the time and they were expensive. You get this little tiny two inch by one inch ad on a page full of them. And it costs you like 160 bucks for a week or something. I'm pretty it? sure they're cheap now. I bet they are. I bet they don't bring many leads either. <laughs> no, they my, don't. My buddies were telling me they were spending $60,000 on half a page in the yellow pages. Yeah. In the yellow pages. Per year. But I think, I, I think that brought leads, right? I oh, mean, it paid off. It worked. It definitely paid off, yeah. But I mean, don't you guys agree that construction is mostly word of mouth? So do ads really work? I think there's different construction models. Like, you know, if you want to do a volume business where what you're trying to do is get as many leads in as you can get, you know, you try to price accordingly. So if you get, say, 10 leads you want to win three or four of them. But that's a lot of hustle. I mean, you've got to be pumping quotes out. You've got to be running to visit people. I, I don't really know how you look after people really well doing that. Yeah. I mean, I can. So there's guys that can, right? Yeah, because your clients expect you to be on the site, but then you have to actually feed the business. Yeah. So you got to be off the site. Which is where another thing that I look for with a guy is a guy that can get onto the job site make good decisions when I'm not there. Like I can't be the guy that only makes decisions about everything. I'll teach you how to do it. I'll support you. And I always say like, Hey, pick up the phone. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Never. And even if it is a stupid question, who cares? It, We're it, communicating. Yeah. And it'll probably give us something to talk about. Right. Do you have a problem with the guy showing up on time? Yeah. So, well, you know, some guys are super punctual, but they got other big flaws in their game. Like, uh, well, like they don't seem to learn they'll make the same mistake like over and over and over. I'm like, what? is that a confidence? They're yeah. not paying attention. They're not looking for the monkey or there's no commitment. I mean, another thing I learned is, you know, you can't incentivize people to do a better job at work by paying them more. That's I, for sure. I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah, on Cause that. I, I've tried that, right? Uh, you know, you give a guy 30 bucks an hour and all he thinks he is, is prima donna. He's You're so right. So, you know, it, it's tough. Cause do you do the carrot or the stick, right? If you do the stick, you're, you're an asshole. No, no. If the you, do, if you do the carrot, you're still an asshole. <laughs> As a leader, if you're not an asshole, you're not doing your job properly. I think so. You know, I mean, when I was young in the trades, this is back, you know, a long time ago. I mean, there was no cell phones on job sites when I was starting in pager. the trades. Do, 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 pager. Everybody had a pager, <laughs> yeah. The, the plumber that was my roommate, he had a pager. He got, you know, all the time, 911 calls all the time. 
he used to send me out. He'd say, take the truck and go do that service call. He goes, I don't want to do it. I'm like, Pete, I'm not even a plumber. He goes, it'll be fine. Just go do it. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the winter when it was burst copper pipes. He hated those, right? (laughs) But I loved it. I'd say, I'll go do it for sure. And and it was for a company. I'd be like, well, how how am I going to invoice them? He said, just cash. Just ask for cash. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that was the Wild West days. That's how you learned. That's how it the was Wild done. West uh, days. No, that's how it's it. done. But you're a licensed plumber. Well, I did my apprenticeship, and uh, the motorcycle accident kind of stopped all stopped that. Stopped it from there. Yeah. And when I got back, I, you know, I got distracted. I did a bunch of other stuff, and that's what you remember. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what's your name? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Call me Charlie. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> On that note, let's take a little break for our next segment. Uh, building Talk with Manny. He always gets it wrong. It's Building Code Talk, man. Okay, let's do it again. Years. Take two. Building Code Talk with Manny. Manny. <laughs> um, this might be an easy one for you. Uh-oh. Masonry support. All masonry shall be supported by what? Two particular materials are accepted in the building code. Lintel? Well, materials. What are the materials? Steel. Yes. Concrete. Yes. Those are the two materials that you're only allowed to use in the building code to support masonry. Makes sense. Kind of basic, but you'd be surprised by we start seeing some people. Stone should be on there too. You should be able to support it with stone. Well, it just says here, except the masonry veneer walls are permitted to be supported, foundation wood frame, during construction that's basically it so and it's yeah. interesting you say that because i guess most of the houses you work on are all rubber rubble foundations they are yeah or, or brick brick double wall brick right triple in the basements wow that's right it became yeah. a triple in the basement yeah you're seeing more sitting on a brick footing on a brick footing yeah i'm doing a house now you were there the oh brick that's footing. that one there really yeah. huh sticks two inches out then there's triple width then it narrows down to double and then uh, and then the double goes all the way up to the roof Let's get into that. But that was building code talk <laughs> with Manny. He passed. never attends the meetings, man. Um, so I, I like the older homes, and but I'm always dumbfounded that you do see that. I've seen like flat stone as a footing, boulders sitting on top of that. Yeah. And then the joints are, you know, fingered. Like you can, they're starting to fade away. They're not waterproof. They're, but that, but the thing is, Structures haven't moved. They restore beautifully too. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you can pack them with Type S if it's a good solid stone. And I mean, you know, you, the foundation is. You know, we we usually do the inside and the outside, and um, waterproof from the outside, which you know you'll agree is better than waterproofing from the inside. Of course, yeah, well, that's the cheaper fix, cheaper way. But it's a band aid. Yeah. But can I ask At you? At least it gives you a safe, clean you know, environment to live in inside, right? Where you don't have mold yeah. issues and. But is it not a fact that basements in Canada were never meant to be lived in? They were just really storage any, or any true basement. Yeah. I think in any home at a certain. It's a period. fairly new idea for people to be living in basements. You still got a lot of southern cities in the states that have no basements at all. Yeah, and it's crazy down there. They don't have frost. I mean, they don't. They scrape off six inches of soil and pour the. It's bizarre. I don't get that. I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. It'd be hard to do, wouldn't it? Can you imagine like just scraping off a little bit and start to put a building? Start on? building. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. Yeah. Wasn't that how it was in New Orleans? No. Uh, what we did was we took 100 foot uh, pillars, ran them into the ground. But you did that for hurricane purposes, though. No, we did that because it was swampy area and oh, is nothing that, okay. could, not, it would just sink There's in. There's no bearing on Anything, yeah, anything under 100, 100 feet, you basically lose your house. It, sink settled differently you guys were going how far down 
100 feet plus. That's expensive, right? How many? It, it is, but when you know you can live in a great area so close to the city, it made sense, right? And then what we do is we'd pour footings around and start doing our rebar, and then we'd do a footing just to hold it in place. Everything was on stilts, so we never had basements. You'd park, you could park your car underneath the house, but there was no livable space no, or storage. Not. You find no. old buildings around here that are basically on stilts too. They're just old logs. They would just sink old logs into holes and sit oh, the house Oh, I haven't on seen that. that yet. Yeah. Really, huh? Yeah. I've never seen yeah. that either. That's pretty cool. You and know, they're not rot? You like... know Barbarian Steakhouse down at Elm and uh, Young Street? Yeah. yeah, I love that place. That's got a double basement below it? Yeah, with the, well, wine, with the wine cellar in there. Well, when they dug that second basement, all the, f- all the footings they found of those old, old buildings down there were wood. Wow. Perfect condition, right? No oxygen, that's why. Well, at least I know but you moisture eat still, though, right? They're soaking wet, but no oxygen, so no rot. So they would get wet, they would stay wet, or they would get wet and get dry? They stay wet. They stay wet. Yeah, and yeah. so as long as the wood stays wet, it's fine. You know, like they salvage logs these days that uh, yeah. were sunk in the bottom of a, a, yeah. a lake or whatever for 300 years and, and they pull them up? perfect condition. Yeah, same thing, right? There's no oxygen down there. It's cold. Wow. So what makes them turn to stone? Petrified wood. That's uh, yeah. That's that's, that's a, a different process. I think there's something process, else. That's yeah. A, yeah. And well, I've seen isn't that sl- from submerging with minerals going it's a kind into? Of, it? I, think, I think it's a kind of a volcanic thing. Yeah. Actually. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. Yeah. And it's expensive. Have you seen it in person? That's I a, have them. Like what do you I, mean? I have like. Oh, I thought you meant the actual countertop. No, I have pieces of it. My wife loves them for like coasters and stuff like that. I'll look that up. I'll find. I'm out. curious yeah. about that myself too. See, that's exactly what I did to teach myself what I needed to know to do construction is I would talk with people, something like that would come up. And I think I got to go figure, find out what that's all go about. Go find the answer. And these days it's so easy. I mean, Dr. Goo, you search it on Google. I, I, I don't trust Google. <laughs> Dr. Goo, you can't talk to the caveman about anything technology here. Um, I actually think that petrified stuff is also encased in epoxy too. I think some people are making those slabs where they actually put them into the important epoxy around. Those are beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's stunning. But then you see the price tag and you're like, no, 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 no. Toyota or piece of slab? Mm, Slab. Slab. (laughs) (laughs) You and I wanted to ask you, um, what are the things that you like about older homes and what are the things that you dislike about older homes? And when we talk about older homes, we're talking about what? 60 plus, 70 plus? Uh, Older homes to me are sort of 100 years plus 100 years yeah. okay you want to go that far all yeah. right i mean that's mostly what i work on okay uh, you know the house we're working on now is from the 30s and that's a kind of a young house for us really okay wow uh, yeah they were all built a certain way back it's, then yeah it's pretty much all we do is on on super old houses uh what i like about them is you know they're just i don't really know what i like about them <laughs> oh sorry guys i'm looking over here and talking to i don't know who <laughs> i was lost in thought <laughs> We're over here. Uh, <laughs> you don't know what you don't like about them? I don't know what I like about them. I mean, they're, oh. they're beautiful. I like the style. I, you know, I like that each one is unique. So when yes. you drive down a street, the brickwork is different. And sometimes you'll see a repetition of a similar house, but they're never the same. You're so and, right. And the millwork, I think, is beautiful. It's never the same. You know, then you get inside of them. And I mean, you know, the plaster and the moldings and the detail on the floors, the staircases you see. I have uh, gumwood for wainscoting in my home. Beautiful. Yeah. The whole house is full of gumwood. That's very hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And extinct now, right? So Handrails, they make a lot of that. Yeah. So it's nice to have people like yourselves and have them come over because then they appreciate all the detail, right? Because my house is 140 years old, right? Nice. I love it. Yeah. 
What makes a heritage home? There isn't really, it's an artificial construct. It's kind of something that a group of people decide that this area is worth controlling in some way so people can't just demolish stuff. You, you have to apply for this, right? You have to request the status? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Okay. So there's some streets in Toronto that you would drive down where you would look and say, you know, this has to be a heritage area, and it's not. You can do anything you want to them. Um, you can demolish them and put a new thing in, and there's other areas where you can, you, can, you, know, you can barely touch them. Have you dealt with heritage? Oh, yeah, a lot, yeah. How was that? Is that fun? They're good. You know, they're, they do have a passion for what they're doing, and I think their heart is in the right place, and, you know, it's like anything else. You just have to work with them, right? And if you're doing the work that you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, almost always, you know, it's some kind of neighbor that phones up and says, oh, they're making a change. I don't know if I like it. And then, you know, <laughs> some building official will it's show true. up and, uh, you know, they'll be like, what are you doing? This is designated area. So I always just say, come on in, I'll show you. I got nothing to hide and I'll show the windows that we're doing and I'll show them the mortar that we use and what we're doing. And generally he's on the phone like, this guy's doing a great job. We should just leave him alone. <laughs> then I see stupid things like we did, uh, you know, reno uh, restorations in Cabbage Town and we're held to all these strict guidelines. You know, you have to have wood windows. They've got to be wood inside, outside. There's all these different things. And then somebody right across the street takes vinyl. out all the original windows and puts in like these Home Depot vinyl things with the gold. So how did that work? How did that happen? A client I had that we did all this restoration work on, he looks, he says, I did all this work to my house, spent a ton of money and it's original and beautiful. I look out my window across the street and I see all these white vinyl things. And he called up whoever he called up and said, you know, that's not supposed to be like that. Nothing happened. Of course. They're still, still there today. That's not right. You know, but, uh, you know, I get into this strange thing where, you know, the city has a grant program for restoring the facades of old houses. And if you want to do some work, you can apply for a grant and the city might give you some money. Is it worth it? Well, you cede a lot of control, right? I mean, as soon as you sort of accept money from the government, they're going to come in and sort of... Dictate what you're going to do. Yeah, they bend your arm a little bit. You know, again, which is good and bad, but it, it can be difficult. What were you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was just trying to get an idea of working with them. I've never worked with them, and I'm just curious about like they're coming in, making sure that you're not, I guess, you're cleaning the brick, you're tuck pointing, but you're you have to replace it with lime. Is that the idea that you have to still stay true to the original? Well, or you don't. How does that work? Where where's the fine line in heritage? I don't really know. I I've worked for many many years with. Restoration Mason, who happens to be a female, she's incredibly talented and in that's fantastic. Working to hear. with lime mortars, she's super talented. How'd you find her? Going around uh, in the city, you know, six degrees of separation. Wow. Somebody, somebody who knows somebody, and you know, whenever I'm driving through the city and I see cool jobs that are going on, I do it less now. But I, I used to always stop, go talk to the guys, go meet the people, you know, ask them for a card, just put it in my pocket and think, oh, if I got to do some of that work one day, I'm going to get that Give person. Give them a call. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So I used to do a lot of that. And that's how you found her. That's how I found her, yeah. Probably is she on social media? She is, yeah. What's her handle? Stone Angels Masonry. Stone wow. Angels Masonry. Yeah. Lee Brilliant. Bamford. Excellent. Oh, that's she, very cool. And she's very good. Super talented. Old school, lime, hot lime, all that stuff? Well, hot limes, you know, it's a fun thing to do, but it's not super practical. I mean, you can buy lime that's pure lime in bags and it's, it's dry powder, but... You know, you hydrate it, you turn it into a putty, and then you mix it with the various things you mix it with. A lot of the problem we have is that, you know, we, we're kind of purist with lime in, on the jobs that we do. It's actually really a big deal because the brick and the, you know, the, the, the old buildings that you're restoring, 
you have to use the correct mortar. And, you know, in the old days when they were built, there was no bag stuff. It was all mix on site. You know, we actually got together just recently and wrote a letter to the a, a, AOC or something. What's Architectural that? Conservancy of Ontario. Okay. And we just said, you know, we get a, a lot of specs for jobs on old buildings come in. And in the mortar specifications, they'll say, oh, use lime, putty, and put some cement in there. And we're like, why would we do that? That's a really strange thing to ask us Who's to do. saying that? The engineer? Well, wouldn't that change architects? the coloring too? The coloring's fairly easy to control with oxides and different things. So, you know, it's, you have to do a bunch of mixes and compare them and try to get them right. So mixing cement in there, is it going to make it... Makes it harder. Makes it harder, yeah, which so you, means it's going to crack. You always want the mortar to be the sacrificial element in a wall. So the mortar always has to be softer than the masonry unit. So why was this particular case? Well, I, I don't know why. I, once an architect said, you know, we don't want you mixing your own. We want you using a bag lime mortar because we want it to be consistent. It was like, what, you're telling me you don't think we can take a measuring cup and scoop out? You don't think we can measure and make a consistent mix? I mean, it's silly, right? But they just don't understand the process the way we do. And that's where I get to the point where you know, all these consultants and architects and people that are trying to do conservancy of old buildings, it's, it's a great thing. But they need to put some of the control in the hands of the tradespeople that really know what they're doing and let them decide what the best thing for the building is. 100% agree. And with maybe that. learn from them. Learn from them, right? Well, yeah. how many times are these people actually on site? Well, certainly not as much as we are. Yeah. So I mean, they, they show up and they, you know, they, they, they're interested. Like, they, they really do want to learn it. But this is not stuff you can just learn in couple of jobs with a no. couple of visits here and there or in a classroom i've studied this stuff intensively for you know decades now and i i just getting to a point now where i'm feeling like you know i think i got a grasp on this stuff i think i get it right and i still keep learning with it all the time so the idea to me that you can say as not even a tradesperson as a consultant or architect you should say what the right mortar is it's crazy right i agree so i'd like to change that i i don't know how that would change it's a you know it's it's a very difficult thing to change the momentum of an industry, right? Is that one of the biggest things? I guess that's uh, the brick and the mortar, the facade, the exterior of a house. Yeah, it's that's where they start questioning heritage, making staying true to what it was like. Right? It's all the street elevation. Okay, so then you're also dealing with a lot of wood porches that they deteriorate over time. Almost none of the porches in Toronto are original. They weren't original to the architecture of the house. Oh, oh wow. They, so they were always added on They afterwards. really didn't have porches when these houses in 1880 and stuff were built. They had a little portico maybe over the entry, just a small thing. But these big porches we have now, they were all added decades later. Get okay. out of here, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the only reason I know that is because I've taken so many of them apart. And I can see details on the original facade of the house that... They never would have spent the time and money to build it that way if they were going to cover it up with a porch roof. So they're not going to put in some super expensive stone lintel and fancy little brickwork detail in a little raised panel effect or something and then put a porch roof over it. Yeah. And cover it up. And Or they you know, they put tongue groove beadboard on the underside of a oriel window that sticks out. They're not going to do that. They would just use flat boards and, and then bury it with whatever the porch is. What are the shameful things that you see being done to these beautiful, classy, classic homes that you want to see changed? I think it's become improved an enormous amount. I mean, the 70s and 80s were a brutal time in Toronto for old buildings, right? Everything old oh, was bad. Tin men. They gutted them, took all the boilers out. Baseboard heaters, 
They made them into apartments. They started adding eight-inch aluminum siding. Square boxes inside. Yeah, they just they just wanted to, they didn't want to restore. They didn't want to spend the money. They just wanted to cover it up and make it look relatively pretty for for sale signs. Yeah, speed work. That's all it was. That's we right. we ended up keeping the boilers, just upgrading to a more efficient, and we kept all the rads. I love boilers. I love rads. Hot water heat. Yeah, I don't like forced way. air heat. It's the best way to heat a home. And it's pretty yeah. crazy because our house is 140 years old and. During the summer, it's not hot. During the winter, it's a little cold, but you know you can turn up the the rads and it's fine, right? I live in a hundred forty year old house as well, and I mean the cold spots that we have, they don't bother me. I mean, it's character of the house. Yeah, it's just part of it, right? Yeah, like the basement's the cold spot. <laughs> but there are people that that bothers a lot, and you know, I'm one of the biggest things that I learned in the industry is you can't judge people, right? I mean, people like what they like. People have the taste that they have. And I'm not here to judge any of that. I'm just here to offer the best construction advice and, you know, try to steer them in a good direction and help them make good good choices about stuff. So if you've got a heritage house and you've got a, a really high-pitched roof and there's slate on that roof, you got to replace it with slate. Repair it with slate? Uh, slate's super expensive. I don't, yeah. I don't think there's any mandate by the city to put slate on a roof. To really? It's, yeah. it's a personal choice. Yeah. The other thing I also discovered recently, well, not four or five years ago, a lot of that shingle work or siding work that you would see way up at the tops of certain sections in certain details of homes, yeah. it's actually not wood. It's terracotta. Yeah. The scallop, I, the scalloped. Uh, yeah, yeah. I never even knew that. Yeah. I didn't realize that. And they're, they're non-existent anymore to repair any of that stuff. How would you repair any of that? Uh, well, you can order them from England and have them shipped over and they yeah. still, they still make them. They've they still got, make them for there. They've got, uh, yeah, they've got factories in England that are operational still today and they've been operational for 300 years and they're making the same wow. original bricks they used to make and that's brilliant yeah i was really impressed by that very very impressed because i mean that would last forever yeah the only reason i guess it would come off is if it's mother nature or wind or something like that broke it off water water's the or enemy water is right? the enemy of everything water gets in and a little bit of rot so if if you know the eaves troughs aren't maintained properly or you know the water's getting in winters and snow and then yeah. Yeah, and expand and all of a sudden pop it off or people do funny things inside and they create a condition where the house can't dry like it used to and that'll lead to rot so they start falling off it's true but, but they're pretty stable i mean it's amazing you come across a lot of the gas lines so the old the old gas lights yeah, tons, I, yeah. I love i love the electricians that decide to run their wires through those old <laughs> gas lines you ever seen those ones are little tiny quarter inch yeah i know yeah, yeah. i know tiny tiny but it's uh, i don't know if it was smart of them to do it or not do it i don't understand that they're it running was super cool i mean the the history of that stuff is that that was all that's all coal gas so they used to process the coal downtown i mean we're talking a hundred years ago and they buried all these gas lines throughout the whole downtown core. Yeah. They produced this coal gas. And, you know, we take gas pump piping into the house for granted today, but they were doing it 100 years ago. And that's how they lit up the whole house. Yeah, I mean. and you get a little gas lantern, and it would have been beautiful. Eh? I would have loved it. Have you found different kinds of stove exhausts in these older, older homes? Because they were basically just open cooktop areas. But they had to exhaust it somehow, right? Yeah, so they would just punch a hole in the side of the wall into the chimney, and they would just dive right into the chimney and let it go through the chimney. Yeah, and, they did, yeah, and, the, and the, the, the flues of the chimney were just parged, and up it would go. They didn't line them or anything. They didn't need to at that time. I get a lot of problems with that in old houses where they have wood-burning fireplace, and all the mortar and stuff inside the flue has degraded. 
you know, you'll get smoke coming through the mortar joints, through the pot lights into the living room and stuff. Wow. So it's like, you know, you can't burn this fire anymore because a little spark could get pulled in and burn your house down. Back on the lathe and all of a sudden it could be an issue. So then we got to put a liner up, you know. Have you done a lot of wet certified fireplaces for people? Uh, Yeah. So the wet certification is something that fireplace guys I talk to, they're kind of like, "Eh, you know, it's one of these things, right? It becomes more of a burden than a benefit and... But you're stuck with it. You kind of have to because the insurance, if you want to keep the wood burner, the insurance won't. What's the burden of the, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a wet fireplace specialist. It's it's expensive to begin with. Really, really expensive to do it. We have put them in. I mean, you put in a wood burning unit and you put in the, you know, the, the, the vent, the proper double wall vent that goes all the way up and. You, you know, it's like, it's essentially, it's a wood stove at that point. It's not really a fireplace. The trickiest part is getting the liner in there, making sure that it could fit in there. Really hard. Yeah. Because they're, they're usually way too big. And then you're dealing with homes that are, oh, chimney's got to be what, 25, 30 feet? Yeah. And then you got to get that liner all the way down. So you have to actually make some openings on the way down to get it down. Yeah. And you either do that inside or outside. You it's do it a, outside, you're re-tuck pointing everything. It's a big job. It's a big job. So for the listeners right now, what kind of projects do you take on? Pretty much anything. I mean, you know, I'm mostly motivated by what a job pays. I mean, if if a job pays what I need to operate and stay alive, I'll do anything. I, I, I like diversity. I, I'm doing a job. We're doing a reno on an old house now. And the one I have after that is going to a ultra super modern house with all these mahogany windows and it's all rotted and we've got to make new mahogany window frames and they've got this big atrium and we've got to make, you know, and we've got to stain it all. I thought mahogany was uh, an extinct wood also now. <laughs> African mahogany. I mean, they, they have sustainable practices where you can, you can still buy mahogany. It's pretty easy to get. For it's you. Pretty, it's pretty cheap wood, actually, too. <laughs> really, yeah? Yeah. It's, it's uh, there's no restrictions in Canada or? Oh, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I guess I'll just say, yeah, we are recording. <laughs> I was like, we're not wired here, but yeah, we are wired. Well, if he's buying it, it's obviously there. <laughs> yeah. well, I actually do like mahogany. I, African mahogany. I it's like beautiful it a lot. Wood. It's I a mean, beautiful uh, wood. A ton of doors these days, entry doors, they're all mahogany. What were the original doors? The original doors? Pine, they're all pine. They were all pine? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you get some that are oak, but most of them are pine. And they were just painted, painted over the years. Yeah, they were always intended to be painted. Yeah, you want to cover up pine. Most of the tr- <laughs> most of the trim in the old days was intended to be painted because paint was a kind of a luxury product. Really? And it was a, a kind of a reflection of wealth when you could paint. Wow. Yeah. Over staining? Over just having bare wood. Okay. And it's the total opposite now. Yeah. That and, is so funny. And now we want to see wood and it costs a fortune. And people want to strip all the pine and leave it exposed now. And it looks nice. I mean, it, it, pine's it, got a nice grain when it comes to that. It's not finger joint pine. It's no, a solid piece, yeah. right? I seen a guy stain some pine in a chocolate and I loved it. And I didn't think I would. I'm not really a pine guy myself, but. Yeah, I'm not a pine guy either. Yeah, but he did a, a chocolate walnut color and, and it looked amazing. I was like, that's pine. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, that is really cool. I'm going to remember that. You can stain anything to almost look like anything, right? There must be a dream project out there that you go window shopping all the time. There's got to be a, a dream project out there that you want to work on. What is it? My favorite projects are getting old houses downtown, gutting and modernizing the inside and restoring the outside. Those are dream jobs. You like that? You'd like that modernized glass railings and open concept and yeah, on the inside? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Clean, modern lines inside and, uh, 
you know, modernizing all the mechanicals and insulating the house properly and making it a comfortable, you know, energy efficient house, but having the whole outside restored to its original look. That's a great thing. It is nice. What are you known for? I guess just what we've been talking about, you know, downtown old houses. You know, I mean, it's another niche I kind of exploit because guys hate coming downtown. Guys hate working downtown. They don't like the parking. They don't like the neighbors. The parking, the tickets are a hassle. The yeah. bins are a hassle bins to get in there. Getting material in there. But a big old house has a big old driveway. Not in every single one of them. Some of them don't even have. I could park 10 cars in my driveway. Your house is You're a lucky man. Yeah, because your you know, house we was got a, the original builder's home. Of Bloor Street, yeah. It so was he an original the original farmhouse. So you, got, you could fit a... A football field in there. That's right? an exception. And downtown, a lot of people buy those and they put an infill, right? They'll get, that'll get a lot that, you know, you have two houses on. And I think that's a shame. Yeah, it is. You, know, you shouldn't it, do that downtown. No, I don't think you should. No. But, you know, how much can you restrict what a person can do? I don't... It's like this sort of uh, idea that a homeowner is in some way, you know, not a taxpayer. And not a, not a person with a mortgage that's paying for that property. I mean, how much can you really tell them... What they should be allowed to do. It's their home. And the neighbors are, I mean, neighbors can be a problem with that stuff too, right? They they get fussy about what color you painted and they call the city and they say, we're not happy with this and that. And What's the reason why the neighbors are the way they are? Is it because you're making a house look better than their house so they don't have the house that used to be the best looking house? I think that's a part of it, you know, jealousy or... Is it actually the noise that we make and the dust that we make and the parking that we do? Is Is it really that? Or I think it's... You're that's making a, a house look better than yours. That's, that's all. A, the dust is a part of it. But, I mean, the, the dust, the mess, the mud, the, I mean, it drives people But that crazy. all goes away. It eventually disappears. The beautiful house stays. But you know how it goes, right? Nobody really thinks that way about anything. No. They're not, they're not going to think, all oh, these guys will be gone in six months and this is going to be great. <laughs> and it adds to my property value. So That's it's what it's about to lead that's, to. That's how I think about they, it, right? That's how they should be it, thinking of it. If yeah. someone's investing $4 million next to me, I'm going, <laughs> in in the last 10 years, I've seen homes on my street go from a million to 5.5. Yeah, it's, it's a little it's bit It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's made it unaffordable for a lot of people to buy houses. I mean, who can who can afford to buy a house downtown? It's all new money. I don't see any, like, there's two houses maybe on my street that's old money, that it's families that have been there for 50 years, and they bought for 40 grand, and... They have these beautiful old gothic homes. And there's a ton of houses in like the core downtown Toronto that are still like that. Like most of the houses from 1880, well, I wouldn't say most of them, but a lot of these old houses have had like four owners since they were built. So they keep them in the family or they live there till they're 90 and then they leave and some, a new owner comes in. I think that's pretty cool. What are the new products you like to uh, bring into these older homes now? What's the, some of the things you're using continuously? Question. Um, I'm looking off the wall again. <laughs> well, you, you, I, I guess, are you using Crate Maker a lot? Are you using products, bricks from them, or who are you using to get your bricks? So, you know, that's an interesting story. Crate Maker's a great, it's a great place. I mean, they, they're really one of the first people that brought in all the products for Lyme. The original ones, You know, because yeah. Lee used to, who's the Stone Angels Mason, she used to have to order it all in from Europe. I mean, find a job, you couldn't buy it anywhere. Wow. And so, you know, she used to go into Cream Maker all the time and said, you know, hey, I need this stuff. And there was just no demand for it. They're like, yeah, whatever. That's, you know, nice for you, but we're not doing it and keeping this stuff in stock and everything. And I guess as the interest started growing, it started making more business sense to them. So they started bringing it in. And yep. I think it just 
came a positive feedback loop, right? They, they brought the stuff in, there was more interest and they brought more in and it just got bigger and bigger. And now they're a great supplier of products, yeah, yeah, products so and tools as well. You can I'm have. trying to think of who else is actually selling those kinds of products. And we're talking about like the original bricks, the different shades of bricks, the mortars themselves. We mostly use salvage bricks. So we're connected with a bunch of salvage guys that go around in the small towns around Ontario where there's like, there's a million small, you know this, they're just abandoned. And they've got the original brick from whatever. And these guys go in, take the whole house apart. They save every brick. Oh, wow. And we buy from them. So they're perfect. Like they're the perfect brick to match a house that we're restoring. So when it's done, you What's can't What's the cost? Come. Is it more or less than... You know, it can be a lot. I mean, it depends on... It's a kind of a supply-demand thing. So if there's a lot of houses that happen to be coming down and he's got a pretty good supply, you know, you can pick it up, bricks up for two, three bucks a brick maybe. But if there's not many around and it's a specialty brick or whatever, then it could be five bucks a brick. That's pretty cheap, actually. Uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a lot for one brick. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and you can you, you can. Is you, it you, is it cheaper than ordering something from Europe and having it shipped here, and you're paying for weight? Well, that's where Crete makers coming in now, right? So I mean, their bricks are down to what, maybe a buck fifty to two bucks or something. Yeah, and, but they're brand new, old looking. Yeah. Right. Brand and, new, old looking. <laughs> the problem there comes is their hardness, right? It's yes. how hard are the bricks? Yeah. It's, it's still different and trying to match it to what's already there for a century. That's where the challenge is. So does that mean that you have to do the whole area? You just can't tie it in or do you, you mix should, it up? You, you shouldn't tie it in, right? You shouldn't even use a hard brick in a soft brick building. Uh, and the problem with that stuff is that you, you will not see the damage that that will do to the building for 40 yeah. years. Yeah. Because it's water, right? The water gets in. It just takes a long time for the damage to happen. But by the time it does, it's too late. No, I'm, <laughs> and this is really interesting because usually we're always talking about, you know, modern homes. And that's like the big thing is everybody wants to just build these new modern I, homes. But I was going to ask you, you because uh, I haven't been paying attention to Vancouver, but are there a lot of older homes in Vancouver? Because I'm under the impression that they're building a lot of modern homes in Vancouver. Yeah, tons. I mean, you know, Vancouver doesn't have the same depth of history that we have in, even on the, the island the no yeah even less i think really well, yeah. victoria you know that's not true victoria has that's, a, a, that's an established kind oh of, yeah it's yeah very, it's very old. a lot very of hippies there, there yeah uh, <laughs> a lot of elderly there but the, i mean the buildings that you would have outside of a city center like victoria in the country would have just been simple structures i mean there weren't a ton of people building mansions like we have downtown toronto or somewhere are you saying that like Toronto is one of the oldest areas for homes? Is that? Well, all of, all of Southern Ontario, I mean, all the way from, you know, Kingston, all the way down to, you know, Windsor. I mean, there's every single little town packed and loaded with these old buildings. The main drag is all from late 1800s, early 1900s. And they're nice to drive through and, and see. And, and just them. those little back streets right off the main drag, you get a little street one or two yeah. over. Yeah. And they're all these old brick stone buildings. They're beautiful. Pickens loaded with nice buildings. I know. And I was just about to get to, I think you just gave me a new bug. Usually look for tractors. Like I'm a tractor <laughs> guy. So I'm always looking for tractors. Now I'm going to be looking for stone. I got an old tractor. I got a, an old Massey 50. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, bigger than mine. I've got 20s. Oh, do you? Yeah. They're beasts. I don't have a tractor. I'll give you one of mine. I got, no. I got one sitting. Uh, speaking of, give you one. Wow. Speaking of that, one. so what, what tool brand are you? Uh, you know, I'm not 
really married to a particular brand. I, I like Bosch a lot. They've got some great stuff. <laughs> oh, I was waiting for Hilti. Uh, well, Hilti's great too. I, I've, I, you know, I bought a big bag of Hilti tools recently, and I'm really enjoying them. I mean, their sawzall is super powerful. Wow. Is it? Yeah, I think it's kicking the butt of my Milwaukee right now. No way. It's a, it's a That's really, the first time I'm hearing that. Really Corded nice or battery? Battery. Oh, battery. Nice. Yeah, straight in the back of the truck. I can show it to you later. I only use Hilti, so I don't know any different. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's not true. You said you used DeWalt. I did. For Makita. hanging pictures. Hanging pictures and cutting wood. <laughs> I, I have a lot of Makita. I think Makita makes great tools. Yeah, I love Makita too. Yeah. That's good to know. We know you're a GMC truck guy. With that pretty snazzy tailgate. Well, wait, wait tailgate. a second. But that's the only truck you came with today. You must have a van. No. I don't have a van. Trailer? No. No, no really, no, eh? No. Everything gets delivered. Yeah, and we set up on a job site, and we move from job to job, and uh, everything's always on a job. One crew on one job site, move on to the next one, next yeah. one, next one. You're not like one guy here, one guy there, one guy here. You know, it changes all the time. Again, it's what I love about my job. I mean, sometimes we'll have two, three, four jobs on the go, small jobs, big jobs. My, my, my favorite thing is to always have an anchor job. So get a nice big job that will take us a year, year and a half to finish. And then, you know, you get a bunch of bathrooms, a bunch of kitchens, a bunch of little jobs. And then summer comes and we do a bunch of restoration work. This takes us to our last segment of the show. Hmm. And that would be Green Book Manny's Talk. Manny's Green Book Talk. <laughs> it's not mine, it's his book. No, no, we call oh. it Manny's. I call everything Manny's. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you do a little... What, he a he always says, why does it have to be mine? And I'm like, it's because it's Manny. <laughs> what Carlitos is today's Green, Green Book? Worker appropriately standing or stepping on ladder. What's the fine? Worker inappropriately standing. <laughs> I was like, appropriately. I was like, what? Sorry. <laughs> inappropriately standing on. What's the fine? Yeah. Why are you asking me? What's the fine? Oh, I'm asking both of you. I mean, I would first offense. 500 bucks? I'd say 250. Yeah, it could be less. It was 250 for the first offense. So, <laughs> and, and we all know what that means, right? You have to have three points on, on a ladder, right? Two yeah. hands and one foot. So. Inspector catches you. First fine's two fifty. Just trying to educate some people. There's a lot of. It's hard to work on a ladder with two feet on there. Working at heights issues are extremely difficult to deal with. I mean, it's time consuming. It's you know, it's difficult stuff for people to manage. Well, when I heard that an electrician has to bring in a scaffold to change a light bulb, uh, yeah, that's pretty nuts. Well, that's technically speaking the right way to do it. I know, but you but can't that set that up, right? I mean, because it goes against, he can't work on the ladder to do that. He has a power tool or whatever. So he has to actually bring in a scaffold to do that. And the invoice is 1500 bucks for a ladder. Yeah. I know. How that's do you do that? Not, so, right? I mean, well, that's where there's some contradictions, they're right? Gonna, they're, so, they're gonna drive us all out of business. Do you do a lot of ladder work? Well, we do when we're doing jobs that require a lot of ladder work. I mean, uh, our jobs evolve all the time. So it's, it's hard for us to kind of constantly be doing the same things, right? What are some of the things in the homes that you come across that you actually built that you're pretty impressed with? I mean, I guess really what cap captivated me recently was how hard it is to build modern. Wow. It is a challenge. It I, is challenging. I, I think it's harder to build a clean line modern house than it is to build a house with a lot of trim. Your measuring you, tape has to be bang on perfect. Yeah, everything shows. For me, that's the easy part, but... I would assume trying to tie in something existing for a hundred years or 80 years and, and then do a renovation to make it seem like you were never there would be harder. Maybe I've just gotten comfortable doing that and I don't see that really necessarily as a challenge. Like I appreciate now, your, your work more than a new modern home. I just find that you're I'd working. I appreciate both of them, man. No, I do, I but totally I just think it's more of an art what he's doing. You're taking something that's existing and, and trying to like, 
make it flawless. Like you were never there. Like that's the way I look at that. But with modern, you're modern's like kind of standing out. It's you're like eliminating all these walls, and you yeah. have the challenge of mechanical now, how to heat everything, which right off the bat should be radiant. But then you got a challenge of AC. But then you got to figure out, okay, so where do I hide a powder room? Uh, where do I put storage and closets if it's all open concept? Where do I put my elevator? Uh, <laughs> that's a secondary. You still need a staircase, though. Is that something you're doing also with some of the older homes, putting elevators in? Yeah, we've done. We uh, we put an elevator in a place in Picton. That was a interesting job. That's pretty sandy soil, pretty high water tables there. So you were low by the beach then? The foundation for the elevator, you guys were digging quite a bit. We were going to put the elevator down to the basement, but couldn't because trying to, trying to dig the pit, every time you dig it, just all started caving in wow. and the water was rushing in and it started threatening the main building. Got a little scary for a while. So the elevator could only go to the main floor. That's yeah. It. yeah. I mean, elevators nowadays, you can get an elevator for what, 10 grand? 15. 15? 20. Yeah. I mean, I, th you know, I think for a residential place. A two-person elevator? It's a different thing than for... You know, just a, a single family dwelling is a different thing than a condo or something. Like even a small condo. My wife, she builds homes. She's doing townhouses right now and every single townhouse has an elevator. Are they like the pneumatic ones or are they... I'm not sure. I haven't uh, been in there. So I... I every single one's got an yeah, elevator? Yeah. They're tiny too. On right? Avenue Road, right around the corner. Four Tre story Treasure, towns, Hill, Treasure Hill's the builder and they're building some pretty crazy townhouses. It, it makes sense because I guess that when you get at that certain age, most people started thinking, let's downsize and get into a condo or let's downsize, get into a bungalow. Or let's just stay in a house and put an elevator. Or let's move into a townhouse, pretend it's a condo, but it's still a feel of a house, right? Elevators are a game changer for sure for yeah. people to stay in, in their home. Which is a great thing, because who wants to leave an area that you get comfortable in, right? Yeah, that's what it is. You got your roots. So I'm, I'm interested. There must be one nice treasure you found in one of these old homes. A safe, some no. coins. I'm still looking. Uh, uh, an old gun. Lots of bottles, probably. <laughs> lots of Love old letters. school bottles. A lot of bottles. Uh, we used to find a lot of bottles when we were digging, doing the environmental stuff, because they used to use them for French drains. They would just dig a giant hole and just throw all bottles in there, and then backfill on top of it. Yeah. We found an old uh, Gatorade had had like a mother of pearl in it and it was embroidered Gatorade. Must have been like the first Gatorade out. And I was like, that's wicked. <laughs> Are you serious right yeah. now? Yeah. Oh. No, you're not being serious because Gatorade is not that old. I know, but for, I'm it's saying like, like uh, if 18, you look at... 1820 Gatorade. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm just saying like, for me, it was nice to see a bottle that was embroidered with glass instead of plastic cra crap, right? It comes to mind like that, you know, that classic Ironworks picture in the New York? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they're drinking Gatorade in that picture. <laughs> I saw, I saw a meme that was hilarious where there was a cop up there giving those yes, guys a ticket. Yes, I saw that one recently, not too. Not social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can think outside the box, Manny. <laughs> no, now you got me all stuck. I'm going to Google Gatorade and when it got started and if they ever made... Yeah, they had glass bottles back in I, the 90s. Yeah, I don't remember that, though. It's like I remember being like 14, 13, and they were... I don't remember glass. They did have glass. I would have never guessed Gatorade came in glass. It yeah. did. It did. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the original color was green, the very first flavor. But this was like a mother of pearl. And I was like, really, like, what the hell is <laughs> You're that? really stuck on this pearl. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think the stuff you were talking about earlier about going into an old place and matching it, making it look like you were never there, that's a more of a preservation thing. So, you know, in old buildings, there's, you know, there's restoration or preservation or just renovation. I never heard that, that term. So, yeah. What preservation? Yeah. You know, that would apply more to buildings that are government-owned or that are these kind of big institutional buildings. And, 
you get a lot of them. The city of Toronto owns a lot of buildings. Like Frat that. houses and stuff. Like down, well, no, like down around the, um, you know, the Roundhouse. Yes. With steam whistle Roundhouse. Yeah. And yeah. In High Park, there's a bunch of old buildings and, you know, they do preservation work to those. So you go in and if there's a little rotted area on some trim or whatever, you don't rip the whole piece of trim out and copy and match it and put a new one up. You trim it carefully where it's good and original and then you tie a new piece in. Hmm. That so, makes me think about like if you're a contractor that's working on government buildings, I guess you've got to be seriously vetted to be even up considered to work on these buildings, right? Yeah. Su- super hard to get those jobs. I mean, yeah. you know, they're... I don't even bother bidding on them anymore, really. Would you make a lot of money on them, or would you? Not according to the original. So I, I got invited to do a restoration work in Aurelia, where they had all these old cottage houses that they were going to turn into the dog kennels. Okay. And I was like, that's like, I want that job. That's like a super cool <laughs> job. So I, I tried hard to win it. I put in a really good bid. I had a lot, I had a lot of really good talks with the general contractor, and... You know, I put in my price and he's like, man, you know, he's, it's a really detailed quote. I really like it. I, you know, no, nobody's ever given me a quote like that. He goes, but, you know, it's a little high. You got to shave it back. And I said, but I can't because I'm not coming up there as a volunteer. I'm coming up there to make a living. He said, don't worry about it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm the king of extras. <laughs> well, is it? That- <laughs> so, so I said, what? He goes, you're going to come across everything that you find that wasn't itemized and it's going to be an extra. And that's how you make your money on and the job. And that's how you do the and, job. And so, you're totally right. That's how you, you bid low and you, you make your money on extras. You're totally lot, right. A lot of these public tender jobs that go out like that, like people can't figure out why does it, you know, why does it start at 50 million? It turns out to be 220 million. And that's, that's exactly that's the reason. That's the game, right? So the original budget figure that was reported was the low ball figure to win the job. And then it's extra, 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 extra. And oh. that's really, okay. okay. What if we did that in the real world? You couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah. Because we would be fired and we wouldn't get another job. Can and you imagine a homeowner yeah. saying, oh, you're going to spend 400 grand on your reno and meanwhile later it's 12 million. Yeah. <laughs> you well, can't you, get you, away with that. Well, no. you'd own the house. You could put a lean on and own the house. No. <laughs> <laughs> that shark tank behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Not something I would do, but for 400 million. But I you're would. bringing it up. But, but you're it, bringing it up. But it's a whole different game. I mean, that, that world of even in you know re- renovation, restoration, preservation, whatever is old building work, that's a whole different game than the residential. I'm just trying to think game. of like if you actually got hired to remodel parts of our prime minister's home or the White House or that, whatever. That, that's been making me mental because I would love to go do that. And I've seen the numbers that they sort of put on the, the renovation or restoration. It has to be public, right? So yeah. all these numbers have to be out there. Right. You get into those jobs and you're stuck. I mean, you know, they hang around your neck like an albatross forever. Yeah, I can imagine. They'd right? still probably be there right now. <laughs> but oh, but if would, you pulled yeah. it off, though, if you pulled it off and it turned out great, then, you know, you're pretty much set. Yeah, I, I would think so, yeah. You know. So I'm just thinking about the networking. At the, oh, oh, by the way, I did this house. Okay. <laughs> you might recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> and it is how it works. You, you know, you win one good job like that. And, you know, I, I tried that hustle for a while. Beating the street. I mean, that, that's, a hard, that's a hard game to do, right? And when I got word of mouth working and, you know, the work's coming and it's like, I'm going to go chase all this stuff. That, but I, you got to stay hungry too, right? It kind of keeps you sharp by doing that. Because I think if you just sit on what 
you have already, then you're going to go back into that routine where you're going to do the same thing over the and drive over. The same route yeah, every day. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're seeing the monkey, right? It's just, that's just how it is. So I think it's, it's or you're actually, missing the monkey. You're missing I the monkey, really sorry. hate this monkey. I'm going to be seeing <laughs> monkeys on the whole way home. I know it for Listen, sure. Listen, have you not seen Trading Places? Yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> there was a monkey in there, okay? Um, but yeah, I think it's important to stay because I think what's happening is all the younger guys are doing it. We keep hearing about the younger guys coming on the show and they would do what you were talking about in the beginning and they, they actually stop at all the job sites and go in there and give up the card and get the card and get the number and, and then all of a sudden they get the work. If they're doing all the hustling, then just because you're at a certain age, it doesn't mean you should stop hustling. But you do also know they're going to learn all the same hard lessons that all of us Eventually. have to learn because Eventually. they'll go in and win a job, but at the end of it, when they've got five bucks in their hand, they're going to be like, damn. Wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it. <laughs> or right. that cost me five bucks. And, that, <laughs> and then the problem with that, well, that's even worse, losing money, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not even just talking about a drop in your profit percentage. I mean, when you're actually spending your own money to, to fix somebody else's house. Yeah, I, I've been on projects where I've literally had to just disconnect from knowing that I'm not making any more money and I had to finish the project with a smile and just finish it happy. And yeah, it's been I, more than once. I've been there lots of times. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Yeah, It's and very demoralizing. Right? It's just how it is. Where but, you sit there and you go, you know what? I could have just stayed home and did nothing. And I'd be in a better situation. But that's why it's only a particular kind of person that does the kind of work that you know we do. It's uh, very true. I'm curious. Are you still on the tools? Oh, yeah. So you yeah. love working? I love working. You know, I mean, I've been at times in my career where I wasn't really on the tools a lot. I had a great crew. Things were going great. You know, things change all the time. So, but every time, you know, when I'm in the office for too long, I go crazy. It, the body hurts. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't like it. The body hurts. It doesn't feel good because you're sitting, sitting down, down too, too much. much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's once, true. Once you're active and you get going, you keep going, it, it's, it, it all goes away. A body emotion stays in motion. You're, you're totally it. right. We were talking about sleep the other day, and I told Manny I sleep maybe three, five hours. Yeah, that's just stupid. That's all you sleep every day? Yeah, yeah that's stupid. Three to five How hours. How do you do that? That's, I, it's going to it catch does, up it with you. It doesn't affect me. It's going to catch up. What affects me, though, and, and this is what I'll get to, it's because 10 hours Manny is not my doctor. Um, <laughs> what does affect me is when I sleep eight hours. I wouldn't take hours, you as a patient. <laughs> I honestly feel like I'm broken. If I sleep eight hours, my body is There is a technique up. there that they do call it, that, that you actually feel groggy if you actually sleep too much. You eight hours find, is You have too to much. find your sweet spot, but I'm just telling you that three hours is not your sweet spot. That's a little too low. But this, I, I don't know, you know, maybe some people are biologically able to do that. Well, I was explaining this to him. I, I <laughs> did could sleep be an alien. <laughs> I may be. <laughs> I am Croatian. <laughs> uh -uh. Um, when I did my sleep apnea, they brought me back again and then and again. And the guy said, I didn't think your numbers were right. You're hitting six different levels of uh, REM sleep in three hours where most people take 10 to 12 hours and some people don't even get past four is that what he told you the test was for uh, no I, I i actually went to the test because i snore like a bear um oh you're a beauty yeah thanks you know what i've been punched too many times in the nose <laughs> deviated septum right? i can't breathe out my left uh, hang on <laughs> oh thanks for that they can ream that out, you know. <laughs> you know what, though? Someone said to me, your nose is crooked, and I kind of like it. And I said, you know what? You're right, this character. <laughs> it's do remarkably you, straight and do, do nice you need looking. <laughs> <laughs> Next to the junk on the side. <laughs> 
Um, so if, if you had anything you could change in construction, what would you change? Holy man, small question. I know. I better eh? look at the wall again. Tiny question. <laughs> tiny question. Uh, tiny question. Say it again. If I could change anything in construction, what anything would I change? Anything at all. What would you want to change? You know what I would change? Carpenter's pencils. We're not talking to you, Manny. <laughs> <laughs> we did. No, I, I actually I love carpenter. I love no, I love part carpet. I will take a carpenter pencil over a pica any day. I love my pica. Yeah, what about just your regular old round pencil? That I'll even take a two H, yeah, an HB or whatever. Yeah, all, all the cabinet guys use those. I right? love those. They yeah, they carbon. all they all have their purpose. I love like those. The big pencil you have right you now. You have a utility concrete, knife. That's a frame or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's those it. are my favorite though. I use them for everything. When I use drywall or I'm doing small stuff like two by fours, I'll use my Pika. I know a carpenter's pencil that you would use if I actually gave it to you. What? If we made construction life carpenter's pencils. Oh yeah, with a flashlight in it. <laughs> How would that work every time you sharpen it? No, at the end. Removable uh, tip? <laughs> Back to our question there. <laughs> what would I change in construction if I could change anything? I think I would try to figure a way to make the relationship between the contractor and the designer or the architect an easier one to manage. Where is the resistance there? Yeah. Well, I think there's people with a vision. And they're the ones that are selling a vision to a client. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, this is, here's this drawing. This is what I see. And the client's like, I love it. I love it. And then we go in as the contractor and say, oh, okay, that's, you know, very nice drawing, very nice idea. It's going to be 60 grand. And then they're like, you're a crook. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, the, the designer, the architect, everybody's been paid. They've done all these drawings. They don't charge a little bit of money. They're expensive. Oh, right? they're you know, very expensive. 150 bucks an hour or whatever they are. Well, and, that's a cheap one. And they do all the drawings and they're all paid. Their part is done. And then the contractor comes in and has to bring it to reality and bring the bad news about the cost of it and everything. And in know, all fairness, shouldn't the designer actually give the client a rough scope of what they think this potentially will cost? But they don't know. I mean, I've, I've that's, had that. That's where, that, that's where I have the problem. So they should actually tell the client, okay, here's a beautiful design. I just presented it to you. We are in the 300 to $350,000 range and go out to contractors and expect to get three bids in that range. But they don't do that. Well, they've also got their contractor in their pocket that they always use, and they've got sure. that little tight relationship. So, you know, the other guys that go in to bid the job, it's a kind of just a, a process thing, right? It's like we got to get three quotes, but we already know who we're going to hire. Right? And then you get into the world of, I guess, the designer will give the job to their in-the-pocket contractor. Yeah. And then their extras would come up or their revisions would come up, and then their contractor's getting the bid. And that's a little unfair now, right? So... And I don't know if people How do, do you this, manage? but you know, when people have those kind of tight relationships, I think there's always a little bit. Oh, of, there's always know, that kickback, major kickback going on. I would like that kind of thing. I would like it to be more transparent. How, How do we I, do that? It, it's a huge thing to change. I have no idea. I, I mean, uh, I think it is transparent. You, you just have to ask. Uh-uh. You like, can I, I tell people all the time, if, I, if I'm dealing with one of my trades at your site, and even if I'm not doing the work... There's a 30% write-off. I got to call the guy. I got to chase the guy. I got to come to the job to look at the work. But I think we're talking before that, before you get to that okay, point, right. when you're trying to bid a job and, you know, here's the drawings, here's, yeah. the, here's the specs on everything. And you sit down, as you guys have probably done. I mean, how many times have you been up at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. and you're trying to grind through pricing? And exactly. You, you want to click send, but you're terrified. So I'll wait till the morning and you get up. <laughs> you spend more hours looking at it. And 
you know, then you finally submit it and you have no idea who else has submitted what. You have no idea who's got relationships with who. And it's just, you're kind of winging it. And it's a huge investment of time that you never get back. And So how do we change that relationship? I mean, I think that, I think the designers and the architects should be a lot more transparent with their designs. Well, I was just talking to my designer. I haven't worked with her in about a year. Uh, I've just been doing callbacks for other bad contractors. And me and her were just catching up outside before I came in. It was really nice to talk about pricing with her, where she's been in the last year, how to change those pricings. Like, I'm just laughing because I was actually on the phone watching you and you were in your van talking and your hands were moving all over the place and your head was gyrating all over the place and that's who you were speaking to? Yeah, I was talking to my designer and, and uh, she was just talking about problems she was having with contractors and delivery. So and what problems are she having with contractors? She only has really a few guys that she can trust. Nobody delivers what they say they're going to deliver. One of her big pet peeves is they set a price and then at the end they're chasing for more money and it's not nice. It's not good business. Who sets a price? Who's chasing for money? A contractor sets a price and says, I'll do that bathroom for 25,000. Which is too low. Depending on the bathroom, depends on the bells and whistles. I'm on the same page. Yeah, but he's probably doing benches and niches (laughs) and uh, curbless and radiant. Oh, he's doing a regular bathroom. To you, that's a regular bathroom. But when you're doing blue collar bathrooms, people can't afford those things. That's true. They don't want a bench. They don't want a niche. They you're putting in a vinyl tub surround and that kind of stuff. it, It it changes the math, right? Yeah. She knows. She was saying to me. You know, contractors are coming back for an extra five or ten thousand, and and it's not right. You already paid. You already got paid for that. If you screwed up, that's your own fault. I, and I agree with that. Yeah. I, you know, I think if you've priced a job, you know, unless it's some discovery that you make, that's some bizarre thing that you that's can, different. You know, if you can explain it, but otherwise, yeah, you got to stick to your price. I still think that the designers, okay, even with the architects, they're always given parameters on a budget of a structure that they have to design. So clients are telling them, "Here's our budget. So start drawing for our budget." Then the designer comes in and don't clients ask the designer for a budget? Like, I think what happens, what, what happened to me, I'll tell you a little story. I built a building for, it was a commercial building. It was an old building that we modernized and fixed to make it into offices. And the architect who did all the drawings and stuff, well, she was a young architect. She was trying to make a name for herself and, you know, she did a good job. But she sold the client that this job could be done for like 150 bucks a square foot. So she was misleading the client. Oh my God, 150, that's like nothing. I know, I'm like, like, what are you you kidding? That's impossible, right? And years later, it turns out that she's not even doing residential work anymore. And I said like, well, why? And she goes, because there's no money in it. She goes, I'm doing commercial now because that's where you can make money. But I'm like, yeah, but you always undersold. Like you can't tell somebody it's 150 bucks a square foot to build their house. No, that's like 1980. Yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah, right? it's like 1880. No, 1980, that was possible. And so when I came along and said, well, you know, what about these old joists on the second floor where, you know, you put your six foot level up and there's a two inch difference between how they're all flushing up with each other? I said, I've got to frame all that. I've got to flush all that up to get the drywall on. I said, I can't just put drywall on it like it is. And she was kind of like, well, why not? And yeah. so I had to kind of explain, okay, fair enough. You don't know, whatever. I, I, I don't mind walking through and explaining it. The reason I'm explaining it is because that has to be paid for. Yeah. yeah. And when the place wasn't gutted and we finally gutted it, there was like four layers of drywall with furring strips in between. And by the time Scratch we got coat. back to the original <laughs> structure, 
you know, that you could tell that they're going to gonna fire there. And, you know, there was a ton of stuff to fix. See, those are the designers that I won't agree with, right? Because they stop their work at the face of the drywall or the face of the plaster. They don't realize that there's other stuff that's going on behind. And, and that's an inexperience yes. in the industry from our point of view. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know what it's like to sit down as an, an architect with a client who, you know, you want to sell that dream, that vision to them. And then you do that and you invoice them and they're talking to you about cost. I think there's a problem there when somebody that isn't in the business of actually doing the construction is having a conversation with about somebody cost. who's paying for it about cost. Right? Yeah. I've got a solution. A contractor should be a part of that conversation. I've for got sure. A, I got a solution for your, for your, your question, your question and your answer. I think every designer should spend a solid two weeks on a construction site for free. Internship. Yes. Kind of thing. And I think every contractor should do the same with a designer. Internship. Both sides get a very good wake-up call on how either side works. They'll be a lot more respectful on both sides. I don't think that's a problem. Like, I think if you work with somebody for long enough and you build a team, like, say, for example, we talked to Jim. Jim has guys that he's worked with for 25 years, and he will not change those guys. You you, you get to understand. Well, I don't know, but we're talking about designers and contractors. Here. Yeah, but. I'm not talking about contractors and subcontractors okay. or employees. But I also think that when a designer gets a job, there's not always a budget there. Like, if you're hiring a, a designer. There's always a budget from day one. Yeah, but it's not as realistic as it is with hiring a contractor usually when a homeowner no, hires but the a disconnect is that the designer or the architect has sold something to the client and then on paper and now it's being given to the contractors to actually make it a reality and they come up with the real numbers of what it's attached to so there's a disconnect there the designer and the architect actually should be consulting a contractor to ask them okay what do you think this idea i just came up with is going to cost. No, I think you're right at the beginning. If they're if they're there to design, I think they should design and then say, okay, I'm bringing my contractor in. Now we'll put a price to it. An internship respect. IR. I don't know. Do you have two weeks to just kind of blow, just kind of that, hanging out that's with a someone? Part, like a part of the problem with that is it's bringing a lot of structure to an industry that is, you know, kind of an organic industry. And yeah. part, part of what I love about my career, my the industry that I'm in is that it, there's no constraints on it. There's nobody telling me, oh, you have to be here and do this and do that. And if it sort of got into that, you know, that's getting into sort of tract housing or this kind of thing. I think even guys yeah, that do right. that kind of work, they love that ability to get out there and just do what they do. And they don't have to get involved in all of this. They're kind of free spirits, right? I'm speaking of it from the custom, like the renovation side of things. So I think if you... Just add that extra element to your business. I think, it, but not track, not regular renovation. But how do you manage that if you have a client who wants to do custom renovation and they've got a designer or architect, they sit down with them. You know, how do you bring a contractor in at that point when... I think the designer or architect should be consulting, should be speaking with the contractor. Yeah, regarding totally right. Regarding the drawings themselves, before it gets presented to the client, they go, listen, the client has told us their budget. We've drawn something that's above their budget. So they should be forthcoming and honest with the client saying, listen, we understand your budget was X. Here's why. And that's what they should do. But they're not doing that. They're leaving it to you at that point. So the contractor comes in, gives the price, and they're like, whoa, 
That's just like way off our budget. And then they wind up finding a guy that will tell them what they want to hear. But they're always going to give be them a, guy. a price there's that they want to hear. Always going to be a guy. And they get all that crappy work done. But then the crappy work's done, or there's the extras, or things change, and then it becomes a nightmare. And then guess what? It's all pointed at the contractor. It was their fault. Yeah, yeah. They did it wrong. I've, I, I've had it happen dozens of times where I go in, I'll sit down with people for three hours, I'll explain a whole bunch of stuff to them, and I'll give them a price, and they'll be like, you know, I won't hear from them for a while. And then eight months later, I'll get a call and they'll say, it's been a fucking disaster. And they'll be like, you know, I, I've been through three Masons and I've had four carpenters and they're all gone. I find, and I spent more now than what your price was originally. So true. And then they want, and then say, you know, can you come back? And I'm like, let no. me guess. You want me to come back in about two weeks when, you know, I typically book six, 12, 18 months ahead, you've already spent most of your money now and you're going to want me to build on top of the what junk they that did. they did. I said, I got to rip it all out. We got to start from zero again. To get it to what you were going to give them in the first in place. In the first place. And, and now they don't have that. And now the budget's gone and they've also got a bad attitude because yeah. they're suspicious. But this would it's have been story corrected. Of my life. This would have been me corrected too. if the designer architect was open and honest at the beginning. And telling them exactly what this stuff. Then they probably cost. wouldn't do the job at all. Then if you're not ready to do the rental, then don't do the or, rental. Or they scale massively. But down, here's right? the sad thing: is that the architects got paid, the designers got paid. That bugs me. That's and the problem I have. I'm what I'm starting to notice is that the song and the dance that I'm not doing for the customer is what's selling the project instead of the truth of what they should get. Like they're getting someone coming in, dressed really well, beautiful hair, talking the big part, you know, the mumbo jumbo. And then I come in dirty. I tell them how it is. And they're like, no, I don't want the truth. Who I is want... this monkey? Yeah. Who's the monkey? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I just looked over at you and I saw a big banana. <laughs> Something's happening here. Okay. On that note. That was your nose you saw. On that note. It's crooked. Yeah. Ewan, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, guys. We really appreciate it. This has been educational and fun. That's uh, Ewan from uh, at Renaissance. Uh, underscore Inc. Yes, sir. Instagram. And it's com, and it's info at com. Phone numbers are on websites, Instagram. You find him there and he'll do an amazing job and we had a lot of fun and you have any more questions? No, you don't. Well, I got tons, but he's going to come back. It up. We love talking. You're coming back. Thanks again, Ewan. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you, boys. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, we learned a lot of stuff, not just about monkeys. Did we? I'm not sure what we accomplished here tonight. No, we learned a lot of stuff, man. Carlito, get us out of here. 416 TO, baby. Out. Banana. <laughs>